Madden Luke's Sci-Fi Sanctuary. The year is 3013. The galaxy is scintillating in the mellow light. Two galactic pilgrims seek out vistas in the samurai future to bring forth the unity of the cosmic shaman. Opening the door of the pantheon of mystics, the evil sorcerer wizard powers the engine of science, seeking to forever alter the sacred balance, traveling on effervescent balls of summer fire. This week, Contact. In the year 1997, Contact was made. You know, whenever I hear the the movie, Luke, you probably don't know this at all. There was a, a... Kid show, science kid show in the early 80s, 321 Contact. And you say the name of the movie and earworm time, it's just stuck in my head instantly. <laughs> do you know what I'm talking about? Nope. Do you know the, the Brit <laughs> do you know the British comedy Look Around You? Yeah. Think of, think of the real American version of that. that right. That's that was so actually it was a good science show in the early 80s to kind of give me interest in that sort of thing. As, as is this movie, I believe, Contact. <laughs> yeah. This is Matt here. This is Luke. This is a sci-fi sanctuary. We're taking, well, nah, we got plenty of fi in this one, but we are looking a little more of a harder sci-fi. And returning back, we have Dr. McDonald, who is a scientist extraordinaire, giving, telling, telling the folks on Star Trek what they can and can't do. <laughs> That's correct. Thank you. I'm happy to be back. Yeah, we, 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 I think both of us caught uh, Shaxx and Lower Duck screaming like Dr. Aaron says we can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> Proudest moment. <laughs> oh, yeah. It was like in the background. I was like, wait, he just said that, didn't he? Yes, he did. I actually went back. Yes, he, yes, he did. <laughs> Love it. And um, yeah, you, um, when I contacted you, you told me that it's the 25th anniversary of this movie, which I found awfully yeah. disturbing because I. <laughs> I saw this on opening night with my father and a family friend. It's one of those like memories where, you know, if you, you know, it's permanently ingrained in your head. So it always seems like yesterday, you know, I got, I got a moment for my six year old birthday party. It works the same way, but I'm like, man, it's 25 years. That hurts. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, correct. (laughs) But I, I I don't think this movie hurts for me. um, I think it's this or Roger Corman's the trip would be the movie I probably reviewed the most as an adult. So, you know, the, the old school Trek films or uh, Back to the Future Ghostbusters. Yeah, I, I wore out the VHSs as a kid. But for some reason, I tend to watch this one at least once a year. So, wow. Uh, <laughs> uh, Luke, where, where are you on this one? I feel like you're so, kind of not you're behind the ball on me on this. My one. parents are both big Carl Sagan guys. So like we had a copy of Contact, a copy of Comet bunch of that sort of thing in the house um so i read the book pretty young um and then it wasn't uh, but my parents both said oh don't bother with the film the film's crap um and then i finally watched the movie in my philosophy and ethics class at high school um, wow. and i didn't like it very much 
<laughs> I watched it again last night for the first time since then. It, it has elements that are good. <laughs> Overall, wow. I don't like this film very much. <laughs> no, you should, because this honestly, this isn't my like my how I feel about it. Probably top ten. So this should be an interesting conversation today. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and and I I kind of understand where parts of it are clunky, but I don't know. There's some specific i guess philosophical bone they hit here that really like, oh, resonates right. with no. me. Yeah. it's not that i think it's clunky it's that i think the philosophical bone is bullshit <laughs> <laughs> okay we're definitely gonna yeah we, we got some things to talk about uh aaron where, where does this one uh first come on your radar yeah i mean i was i was probably preteen, i think when this came out so uh i was ripe for that age i was super into the x-files and super into aliens so any science fiction was like my jam and then just having i don't know just having a woman character lead it be an astronomer be like have this sort of mystery and get to actually see what science looked like. Like I was super into it. So you talked about like wearing down the VHSs. Like I probably did wear down the VHS. I haven't watched it that recently. Like it's probably been a long time since I've actually watched it, but I remember so much of it so clearly. And then I read the book after I saw the film, cause just the order of things and kind of, I don't think, <laughs> I think it probably was smart to wait a couple of years to read the book because it's hard sci-fi. Like it's hard sci-fi. Um, but yeah, it just kind of put this little nugget in my brain of like, oh my God, like I could be an astronomer. I could study aliens. That looks awesome. And that was something I literally chased into my professional career. I think I haven't, I've read like 10 Carl Sagan books, but I don't think I've read this one weirdly enough. So I wonder if that's part of the the connection uh, or the 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 dissonance with you, Luke, because uh, you you read the book long before. Mm. So um, yeah. I'm just curious because usually I'm the guy like, hey, the book's different this way, and, and in this case, uh, <laughs> I actually didn't bother reading the book. So uh, I, I did read Demon Haunted World like five times, but <laughs> um, how, how's the vibe of the book different? It's not a Christian preachy thing in the book. <laughs> Whereas yeah. this film comes across really Christian and preachy to me. <laughs> I, I would put this in the camp of sci-fi with like left behind. <laughs> so, okay. No. So that's, that's really interesting though. Cause I was kind of, I don't want to like commandeer the direction that you're going in, but like, since you brought that up, um, I was thinking about that a lot lately because this film came out right in 97 mm. and certainly like in America, we didn't have as polarized a relationship with like religion as we did in the early 2000s. Cause that was the W Bush era where mm. they really started polarizing Christianity as like a political thing. And it became like huge in the culture. And so I can totally understand if the first time you watched contact was like post 2001, then it would have a totally different vibe than it did in the late nineties, like totally different because yeah. it didn't feel, yeah, it didn't feel that sort of like preachy or polarizing or like, I, I don't know. It, it was just a different time. It was a different time. then. That's interesting to me because in the film it depicts like, you know, the Christian culture war guys protesting against the, the experiment and stuff. Yeah, but it was it was much more of like a fringe thing at that time. And it wasn't as tied to like your, you know, when it what it became in the early 2000s was like the Christian right, especially was like 
you know, dictating your quality as a moral human based on whether you were religious or not. And that wasn't as much. I mean, certainly that was a thing in the late nineties and like, certainly that fringe side existed, but it was more fringe than mainstream. And so, yeah, that culture existed and it was familiar to people, but it wasn't as like personally attacking as it was later. Because like even within the film, the reason she doesn't get sent on the mission is because she said she doesn't believe in God. I know. Oh, God. I like the ground. I don't. I refuse to believe that even as early as 97, 95 percent of people on Earth. (laughs) There's no way that's a true stat. (laughs) I know. I know. Yeah. I wonder if. You know, like where I was when this movie came out, like, you know, I live in Japan now. If I have any religion at all, it's sitting around at temples by myself and sometimes with Luke doing podcasts. So this this podcast is your new religion. But, uh, <laughs> you know, in the late 90s, my first job ever was that. So, you know, I, I just had all this like different things in my life where I was like a punk rocker going out into the worst parts of town playing gigs. And then I was like an Eagle Scout. And then I was like my first job was at my parents' church, like carrying the big cross at weddings and, uh, you know, helping them with the the communion and stuff, which was nice because I'd work two hours on a Saturday and get 50 bucks, which is great when you're (laughs) in high school in in 1997. So, you know, it's kind of like I had my, you know, we did, we had the the cool preachers coming through sometime or whatever. So, you know, um, I actually, Luke, do you even know that I went to church a lot when I was a kid? Yeah, you mentioned a few times. Okay. I I went to church for a bit as a kid and I, Mm-hmm. I would probably describe myself as a spiritual person, especially since I like came to Japan. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm not. I'm not like some Richard Dawkins atheist guy who just mm-hmm. hates on this film because it has a religious element. God is yeah. not just, great. <laughs> I just think the way the religious element is done mm. is like pretty clunky and preachy. Yeah. Um, like there are there are films which you would describe as Christian, which I have enjoyed in the past. But mm-hmm. I was hope I whenever I watch this, I forget that it's like this. And I'm hoping for much more of a hard sci-fi. What I'm hoping <laughs> for fair. is Arrival. Mm. Arrival is the sort of the version of this that I prefer, where it does lean way more into just, you know, yeah. alien stuff is cool on its own. You don't need the other aspect. I think that's fair. And I really do attribute it to being like, that's what dates it for me. If mm. anything, it's just the the heavy religion aspect that it just changed. I don't know if that's the same story we would have told if it got made 10 years later, you know? Or if, if if you made a film where that was such a hard element of the story, it would mm-hmm. it would be because you were making a deliberate statement, right? Yeah. It would be, look how religion hampers science or something. Whereas here, yeah. that's meant to, you're actually, I think, meant to be on Matthew McConaughey's side. <laughs> I can't quite tell. Well, uh, Luke, why don't you tell us how, how this one runs down to your prism, and then we'll get to that reconnaissance. Okay, let's do it.
Dr. Ellie Arroway is an orphan with a love for radios. She grows up and becomes a SETI researcher, but struggles to find funding until she receives a signal from the Vega system. Ellie and her team begin to decode the signal, eventually realizing it contains schematics for a machine, which may be able to transport one human occupant on an interstellar journey. Partly due to the involvement of her religious old flame, Palmer Joss, the position is not given to Eddie, but instead to her boss, Drummond. Just before the flight, Drummond is killed and the machine destroyed in a bombing. Luckily, the project's billionaire backer has built a backup in Hokkaido. Ellie flies in that one and spends 18 hours in Vega learning the secrets of the universe, only to wake up a second after she left. She can't prove that she made the trip. The world has to take it on faith. And on, on to the talking about the folks. So, Although that's just reminded me that, Aaron, you've become like our Matthew McConaughey consultant. I know. <laughs> <laughs> We've created the like McConaughey, Dr. Aaron multiverse now. <laughs> it is very weird. Yes. Um, it is wild to consider just how different he is in this movie. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. We've, we've already been talking that angle. So I guess we should actually talk about him first, because I think we're going to mm-hmm. take a pivot to the more sciencey spot, which maybe we'll do by talking about, you know, Jody playing Ellie. But yeah, uh, McConaughey's part. I don't know. It's weird as I get older. I mean, in the movie, he's supposed to be, I guess, the gray area, which maybe that's part of the thing that like dates it kind of weird because now like. You know, it's like whatever you say with it, the Internet and everything becomes so much more echo chambered now. Like you you make a statement and people make assumptions where he's yeah, no one is willing to accept the existence of a gray area anymore. Yeah. And, and I think that his character was it Joss Palmer Palmer Joss. Which way is it? Uh, anyway, Yeah, he's a guy with two surnames. <laughs> no first name. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just to flip a coin and choose. But I, he. <laughs> I guess he exists in a gray area that we can like barely, like you said, barely recognize these days. But uh, as I've seen the movie a few more times, I'm, I'm like a little more willing to like actually listen to him. You know, I probably read books, you know, written by this. I've read 10 Carl Sagan books. I've read, read plenty of other those kinds of books. You know, I've read books that someone like him would have written as well. Mm. So, <laughs> Yeah, well, and that's that's where I think. And feel free to correct me because it's been a long time since I've watched it. But in my mind, like, I remember him being really religious, um, but not in a condemning. I mean, he does condemn her a lot in it, (laughs) but it's like the, you know, uh, it's really it's really tough. It just seems like at least he's a little willing to have a dialogue. Now, I don't know if, you know, this is a thing that especially in my field of science communication, we always have to be wary of is like, 
if people kind of confront me about, I mean, God forbid, like flat earth theory, or like if we've landed on the moon or anything like that, the first question you always ask is like, is there anything I could say that would change your mind? Like, is there anything I could tell you that's going to change your mind on this? And if not, then it's not worth either of our time to have this conversation. Right. And I, and I feel like the way their interactions are in the film, it's a lot more nuanced than that. Like there's not this diehard um, you're never going to change my mind. It's like a genuine, I want to talk about this thing, which I appreciate. Yeah. Well, his angle is that he doesn't, he's not like a full on Luddite anti-science guy. He just right. doesn't think science will give you the ultimate answers to like the philosophical right. questions. And okay. I mean, even, even someone who is very much a scientist might think that, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the most horrible thing he really does is ask her point blank if she believes in God, which gets her off the mission. But later he's like, that wasn't a philosophical question. I just it was I personally couldn't deal, you know, like he yeah, was, he was trying to get her kicked off the mission because he didn't want to lose her. Right. So, you know, that's not which is, shit, which is a, a different way. dick move. <laughs> yeah. <a> dick move. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I guess we have to give him like at least two points for at least admitting it. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. But uh, yeah. Yeah. But he loses five points in the, <laughs> in the first place. So. True. True. Yeah. Yeah. One step forward, two steps back for sure. So. <laughs> I don't know. She yeah. seems cool with him at the end, but that that could be a bit of you know movie magic. Well, yeah, I also don't. I think part of the reason maybe this film doesn't land for some people is I don't think there's a lot of um, chemistry between Jodie Foster is and Matthew McConaughey. There that is, is not. <laughs> <laughs> there's, but however, though, we have all made poor life decisions mm-hmm. uh, throughout our life, and that's that's where I feel like it does actually succeed in the sense that. It, it tries to sell you at the end that there's some ro- like long-standing romance there, whereas really I wish that they just leaned into the fact that like you can get seduced by someone and you can just like fall into the category of like, oh, this is someone who's like different for me and challenges me and that's really hot and I'm super into it. And like that person's probably not great for you at the time, but, um, but that's life, you know? And I wish it kind of leaned into that a little bit more of like, no, they're not meant to be together by any sense. They don't have the chemistry. They're just making bad life decisions. <laughs> yeah. But you don't get that in Christian films. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess one thing in film world we have to consider is uh, this is the, you know, Robert Zemeckis follow-up to Forrest Gump. So he sort of yeah. like, I think he, I think there was like a feeling that he had to put some kind of like sentimentality into this movie to fit the Forrest Gump crowd, whereas the book doesn't have that. So it's kind of a, you know, maybe a different, I, I'd like his direction in this movie. I think it's good, but maybe he really wasn't the right director at that time. Like maybe he could make it now better than he could in 97. Mm. Well, I think the book does have sort of the element of Ellie being an orphan and like she's searching for her dad and stuff. So there was sentiment there without shoehorning in a Hollywood romance. But even today, I think films are only just learning, hey, it's okay to not put your lead male and female together at the end of every movie. Well, and especially when your lead is a woman, you know, that there's this desire of like, oh, no, she has to be with a man by the end of the movie, because otherwise, what's her point of living? And I mean, that's a big thing, you know, and I think I agree with you that we're only just starting to be like, no, she she can just exist and be a scientist and not, you know, be with anyone. So Jodie Foster's Ellie, she's lacking chemistry with with 
Joss Palmer, Palmer, Joss, whatever it is. But I, I do think she has some fantastic screen presence in this film. It's almost, yeah, again, we could like jettison uh, Joss and it wouldn't really matter that much. <laughs> I mean, yeah. we still have I mean, quite she, a movie. She's a great yeah. lead. Yeah. She carries the film very well. And I think that's that's what kept me going back to that film over and over again was her, you know, that she portrayed like what it was like to be a scientist. I think very accurately, like it's just it's what it's like to be a scientist and just be driven by the pursuit of truth. And it's like you're given a puzzle and you're so consumed by it and so mm. fascinated by it. You just want to chase it to the end. She yeah, I mean, she kills it. She's awesome. When I kind of want to really up- feel her frustration, in a lot of scenes. And she's mm-hmm. being shut down for stupid budget reasons and everything. Yeah. I, I was kind of curious, uh, the, the scene where she is being turned down by the final corporation, how much of that's drama and how much of that is like, you know, real world confrontation. <laughs> Daily life as a scientist, you know, it's it's tough. Scientists don't make a lot of money. They're constantly trying to bid funding councils and compete against each other for money. And it's just trying to please everyone, but all you want to do is do your science and you don't care what the politics look like. You don't care what the press releases look like. You, you just want to, you want enough money so you can survive, so you can continue doing your science. And like, that's the vibe that she gets across. And I think that's, what's so true to life as an academic scientist. Mm. Uh, this is slightly off, we're getting off the actors a little bit, but one thing I was curious about this film presents it as like, Everyone in the world thought Seti was a load of bullshit. I don't remember that being the vibe in like the late 90s, early 2000s. I remember everyone being really excited about Seti. I used to have that thing running in the background of my computer. Yeah, so did I. <laughs> so I'm wondering did I. If, it, if it was really that difficult to set up, you know, to get some like telescope time for those guys. Um, um, yeah. I'm looking something up really quick. Sorry. Okay. Oh yeah. So Carl, Sag- Carl Sagan was actually like quite involved in the forming of SETI. So maybe yeah. that aspect of the story made more sense when he wrote the book in 85. But by the time yes. of the film, I think actually most people were pretty on board with it. Maybe that's why well, it has a bit of a disconnect. And I briefly mentioned it too, that like I was super into the X-Files at the same time that, Mm. um, you know, the X-Files were also huge, huge in 97. Like that, that was peak X-Files time. And um, I do think, especially in the er late eighties and early nineties, the SETI crowd, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence was seen very much as like the lone gunman, you know, of the X-Files, like the crazy sort of conspiracy theorist guys. And, um, and the issue too, is that, you know, with SETI from like a scientific perspective, um, they didn't have a lot of good justification for telescope time, which is hard to come by in its own right. It was just like, no, we just want to listen. And it's like, no, no, but like, I want to study this and I want to study that. And so people are, have all these competing processes, but like you said, you know, um, once they kind of established in the mid nineties, how to do the SETI at home, which let's be honest, none of our dial-ups internet were like good enough to actually (laughs) do SETI at home. We just tried, (laughs) but to try to process ambient data, like that, I think that's what started getting it more respect. It was like the combination of this film, the X-Files, and then like the, the movement to SETI at home and all of the sort of PR around it was like, no, 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 this is just background radio signals that we want to search through. 
Um, so yeah, it's, I, I think when this came out, we were in that transition of giving it a lot more legitimacy. Okay. Before we uh, get too far off the actors, uh, we, there's at least two more with, I think we need to discuss with uh, Tom Skerritt, uh, you know, his character, it's like a Drummond, Drummond is it? It's playing a very different kind of, I guess he's the political man. So he's playing religion as a card. You know, he even plays science as a card, you know, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. Uh, I, he's, he's a, he's a guy that gets things done, but is, is somewhat inauthentic, I suppose. Oh yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, he, you're meant to want to punch him in the face, I think. <laughs> <laughs> True. Correct. They still, do they give him a few moments of humanity? It's hard to tell. They, they do They do humanize him, but they don't sort of, they don't forgive him. I, I definitely no. like the part where like, oh, he knows he's on camera, you know, when he's like. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. That seems to be the defining moment. <laughs> That's exactly. We only get to, we do get hints that there's more to him underneath, but we don't actually get to see any sort of like redemption or, you know, major turnaround for him. It's like, no, he's still, he's just playing the politics. That's what he's got to do. Yeah. Meanwhile, Jake was, he's been making like, you know, random appearances in my nightmares for the past 25 years. <laughs> That's like the most disturbing face in film history. I think, I mean, he, he out, I think he outdoes dad for this one. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. This is one of those roles only, only abuse he can play that because he doesn't really get to like have much in the way of lines or anything. But his face just does it. Yep. You see him preaching, and then when you see him on that camera, you're like, "Oh shit, here we go." Yep. <laughs> I like nothing about what's in front of me right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, the other two um, I want to mention. So we've got John Hurt playing the millionaire, the billionaire backer there. Yeah. And I was like, wait, who's that? I know the voice. Who is it? Who is it? Like all the way through the film. And then the credits, like, oh, it's John Hurt. For a brief second, I thought it was not from the voice, but from the face. I thought it was. um, Nimoy. I've forgotten his name. No, I thought it was Doc Brown. Oh, really? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know he could do his voice that croaky, but that's definitely his face. But no, it's John Hurt. So we've got a doctor in this movie. That's cool. I, I did notice the dodgiest uh, effect is his zero gravity push in the space station, which is like, yeah. I was watching last night. I said, wow, that's a, that's a rough, I mean, it's on the grainy yeah. camcorder, but still I'm like, man, they, they could have spent a little more time on that. Well, especially as we yeah. just watched Apollo 13, like a week ago. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Um, Fair enough. Just, uh, I think, Maybe we mentioned the film series. We decided that uh, this is a movie theater across from Luke's place. We decided it's a history of space travel. So they showed the right stuff week after that. Oh, they showed cool. Apollo 13 week after that. Armageddon. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Although on the Armageddon kick, um, this one in Armageddon is a double bill of um, William Fickner. He's the yes. sort of death. He's plays such opposite characters in these two films. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah. Does. Oh, <laughs> He's such God. a sweet, nice, lovable, like sensitive guy in this film. And then in Armageddon, yeah. he's like the rip-roaring Air Force, guns blazing. <laughs> the president's giving me the order to detonate this nuke guy. <laughs> well, uh, so yeah, he, he gets a few acting points there then. Sure. Yeah, uh, because I, I'd only really seen him in closer to his Armageddon role. Right. Uh, no, there was that TV series a few years back, or Invaders. It was like an Invaders of the Body Snatchers sort of 
reimagining. Yeah. He was the sheriff in that. So that's how I picture him whenever I see him in anything. I love that. And here he is playing just like the sweetest, nice, nicest guy. <laughs> I do you... really like him in this movie. <laughs> yeah, you straight up watched those two back to back, didn't you? Yep. <laughs> that's, that's hilarious. Uh, uh, I don't know if the the last one you want to talk about is Halle Berry. I'm like, she's here. She's fine. She gets five seconds of screen time. <laughs> yep. Early Halle Berry. Yeah. Or were you going somewhere else with that, Luke? Um, no, I think. Oh, no. I was just going to mention the um, the actress playing young Ellie has actually grown up to be in stuff. Uh, she oh, has a big role in the Hunger Games trilogy and stuff like that. Oh, so she... This is a, a first. No, I actually did. I, I did show this movie to my daughter when she was around. Oh, that yeah. Age. So she hey, she now goes to Yashiro, which is the super science school. That's 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 actually what it means. Luke, by the way. Yeah. Shiro. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> now, you know, yeah, the <laughs> young young Ellie was played by Gina Malone, who, yeah, was in the Hunger Games as well as um, Pride and Prejudice is what I know her from the, ah, okay. the 2005 Pride and Prejudice. Oh, so she wouldn't have been much older for that one. Yeah, no, she was she was one of the younger sisters, younger Bennett sisters, the Matthew McFadden, Kira Knightley one. Yep. Although, you know, age 10 and 18 will give you very different people with an eight-year difference yeah. there. Uh, oh, yeah, yes. You're thinking about adult <laughs> yeah. people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is cool though. I never I never realized that was her. That's really neat. Yeah, so, it's only because when you look on IMDB, they put the picture of her like as a grown mm-hmm. adult. <laughs> I was like, don't, don't remember her being in the film. Or, that's yeah, what, that's what happened with Jurassic Park, right? When you're looking yep. them up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Whenever we're looking at a child actor, we can tell if they had a career because it'll either be a photo of some buff adult we don't recognize, or just a screenshot <laughs> right. from the film where they're the child. They're like, oh, okay, I guess this was all they did. <laughs> right. <laughs> People are hearing this it's august but as we're recording this it's bastille day for dr in there it's uh the 15th of july for for us and uh this is one of the reasons i always send reminders to guests but it's like you're not busy because of james webb are you <laughs> so <this is> right <laughs> it's like she's got to be busy with that stuff so we we're getting all these yeah. like you know wild space images and then i'm watching a movie talking about how no the, the way to really see and and to spaces is uh you know radio telescopes um i guess i was just gonna say could you riff on that a bit what we're seeing yeah totally didn't we get you on last time right as we got the picture of the black hole as well we did yeah (laughs) (laughs) our big space picture correspondent i love it um yeah so the um I mean, the thing is, is like most of the astronomy that we do these days and up until a few years ago, the only astronomy we did was in the electromagnetic spectrum. So that ranges from like radio waves to microwaves all the way through like visual light, ultraviolet x-rays, gamma rays, all of those in between. And um, and so those are just different 
frequencies, right? Different wavelengths uh, of the same thing of electromagnetic radiation. And so what we saw with JWST, the new telescope that just came out, um, that is all optical and infrared. So it's like Hubble. Hubble is also optical and it spills a little with JWST. It spills a little bit into the infrared. So it can sort of see in these different spectra. Um, Predator can see in the infrared. <laughs> if that <laughs> reminds you of anything, it's just being able to see heat, right? Humans emit in the infrared spectrum. And so the JWST can pick up both infrared and optical signals. But what we have in contact is that Ellie is a radio astronomer. And so what she's doing is she's using the Very Large Array, which is a series of telescopes down in New Mexico uh, that are picking up radio signals. And the way that the uh, Very Large Array works is it has these long sort of, you know, dozens of radio telescopes, satellites, they look like all in a row. And you can think of those as essentially pixels on a camera. What they're doing is they're pick, they're each picking up sort of a different signal that allows you to see this broad range of signals in space. And so radio signals are the things that we look for the most when it comes to extraterrestrial intelligence, because that's our primary mode of communication is through radio waves. And so that's why, um, Steady has always kind of focused on the, the radio spectrum to try to pick up extraterrestrial communication. And um, yeah, so being a radio astronomer, I mean, that was sort of my first gig as an astronomer when I was an undergraduate a research student was looking at um, hydrogen in the radio spectrum to try to find clouds in the local universe of hydrogen as one does. <laughs> so uh, with astronomy, there's just so much, so many different kinds of astronomy out there that people can do all in different spectrum. And um, yeah, I just, oh God, I still, so my first gig as a radio astronomer um, where I actually got to go to a telescope, I got to go to the Green Bank Telescope, which is in West Virginia, very isolated in the Appalachian mountains. It's a very surreal experience to do. But let me tell you, I got into like the control booth, which is this massive Faraday cage. And so all the electronics aren't interfering with it. And I got to like hit enter. And then I hear this like, and this massive telescope like starts shifting outside. The first thing that came to mind was like, I'm in contact. <laughs> this is, that was the first thing that crossed my mind because yeah, it's radio astronomy. So nice. I, I would say as these, uh, as, as a relative layman, I mean, you know, I read like popular science books for, for these current images, of course. Uh, I, I would definitely recommend everyone look at the Hubble by the, the new ones like comparison. And then you're like, Whoa, <laughs> mm -hmm. that, that's when it really, uh, that's when I really, figured out like what that thing was doing so uh yeah for sure and and you can look up a lot of comparisons of like the famous uh hubble deep field images compared to the jwst ones and like how much smaller of a size it is and how much more it's seeing it's like it's mind-blowing it's crazy
so um let's i guess let's think about the aliens plan well they, they are technically plans uh is is this i mean there's a lot of like you know plot or you know there's obviously someone's writing a script there needs to be conflict is this an intelligent way to try and send information <laughs> it seems well, it's so, i know i love it is one of my favorite moments in film ever is when they start decoding that signal and they mm. start it starts realizing on the screen and it's hitler yeah. and the response is like oh no <laughs> and then they figure out obviously like it was sort of the first big radio broadcast and they're just sending the signal back to us with more embedded in it and i think that part is really smart I think that's really mm. cool. It's something that we would recognize knowing it's something that we could read, something that we could pick up, but then have an embedded signal within that that we can decode makes perfect sense to me. I yeah. was thinking this time around, well, if he's opening the 36 Olympics, he's probably not saying anything particularly horrible in this speech. And they don't know the other stuff. So <laughs> it's still I mean, the other stuff is going to get to them. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm just saying as a first contact, just like, hey, we're starting some games, I guess. But yeah, I do like what is it we spent, you know, five years trying to yeah. beat that bastard. Like the vegans have just finished sending the message back and then they're getting like, oh, you know that <laughs> Hitler guy we put in our video? <laughs> I Maybe think he's not- been cancelled. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's a hot you take, know- but I do think as a society, it's time to cancel Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> What, what I find so fascinating about that that I've only just really thought about in the last couple of years is that, you know, we talked about sort of the signals that Earth is sending out and this whole concept of, of contact, right? That mm. Earth is broadcasting these radio signals out that, that are traveling at the speed of light that can be picked up hundred close to 100 years later, so 100 light years away. But um, we are now not sending out as many radio signals. We're starting to do more tight beam communications. We're starting to do laser communications. And so our radio broadcast, like our radio signature is much lower than it used to be, uh, especially in the nineties. And so it's like this one weird window of like, not even a hundred years of loudly screaming in radio signals that Mm. you would have to catch from an alien species. So thinking reverse, right? Like why haven't we picked up radio signals from another alien species? You have to pick up the hundred years that they're doing that before they advance their technology to something else, which is incredibly rare to do. It's just really, or just they have to be deliberately sending a message like they do here. That's something I definitely have heard before where it's like, yeah, we only actually were beaming out like that for a pretty short time. Yeah, yeah. So thinking uh, other advanced species, they, you know, that hundred light year window could have passed us by already before whatever species was sending out radio signals, not deliberately, switched to another technology. I do really like the start, the literal start of this film, where it zooms out from Earth, and as you're going, the radio signals are going back in time. Yeah, yeah. I was I was watching it last night, and thinking, gee, when you actually think about what you're hearing and what you're seeing, it doesn't fit. But it is it is like one of the coolest shots ever. Uh, Star Trek: First Contact came out a year before this, and I remember they were like bragging, like, uh, "Oh, this is like the longest zoom shot ever." When they have Picard and they're coming out of the board cube, Contact's like, oh, you know, hold my beer, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> so, um, there's also the uh, Powers of Ten movie, the the Eames did which uh 
Uh, Luke, have you seen that one? I, I see no. you shaking. Yes, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I saw that I, San Francisco's one of their museums, and I, I actually did an oral hygiene on that. But it starts with a a couple having a picnic in Chicago, and each shot is—I I guess it's not a continuous shot in that case, but each shot it is like zooms out ten. Yeah, yeah. So before long, you're staring at you know galaxies. Oh, okay, uh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it goes out by a factor. Of, it's just something that, like, yeah, every school in America was basically given a VHS copy and told to play this. <laughs> so it's like a lot of elder millennials that all know the power of 10 video because we've all watched it. But yeah, it's the couple having a picnic and then yeah, every shot is a 10 times zoom out and then it comes in and it does 10 times smaller and smaller and smaller. It's pretty cool. But yeah, it's this what it reminds me of. Well, as I've told Matt, the only video I remember watching at school was the one about children being electrocuted. <laughs> just not to play with wires. <laughs> absolutely horrifying. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> I have made Matt watch it since then. That's oh fantastic. yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was fantastic. Um, uh, how about the the machine? Uh, that that's a pretty wild one. Of course, uh, I oh, I watching this time we had a company trip to Hokkaido a couple of years ago. I was like, hey, I know exactly where they built that machine. I, I it was actually kind of a boring part of the coastline, which is maybe why they built it there. <laughs> yeah, I um oh God. briefly though, while we're talking about zooms, the bit where he zooms in on Hokkaido and shows you the machine, that was definitely not to scale. <laughs> the machine was like the size of a city in that shot. <laughs> well, it was pretty big, to be fair. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. Um, so the design of the machine itself—it's all like wheels within wheels, and I don't know how much of that is from the book, but it—it's basically a biblical angel, mm-hmm. in a way. Yeah, um, it's got—it's got a lot of that imagery for sure. Yeah, which obviously fits into sort of this film's version of the philosophy of it all. Yeah. Well, you could... that was interesting. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's... Well, I was just going to say, like, it's interesting that you bring that up because just stepping back for a second and then we can get back into the machine, but it does make me wonder, like, if you asked Robert Zemeckis what the theme of this story is versus Carl Sagan what the theme of the story is, mm. I think you'd get very different answers. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's fascinating. So Carl Sagan was dead by the time the film came out, right? Like like, so. it, like within a month or two. That's what I was wondering. Really yeah. How, how close was it? I wonder how much of it he managed to see. You think the film killed yeah. him? <laughs> <laughs> he well, maybe he was well, struck down. By... He watches <laughs> like, I can't believe you did this. And uh... <laughs> I, I, I didn't even realize until the very end of the film says for Carl. And I was like, yeah, oh, yeah, I guess yeah. he didn't, didn't make it. Yeah, yeah, it was real. Yeah. yeah, I don't know if he saw it or not. So, <laughs> and I do think it's good that you pointed out that Robert Zemeckis had just come off of Forrest Gump when he made this film, because regardless of the quality of a filmmaker, of which Robert Zemeckis I think is like you know the king of the late '80s, early '90s films, um, that's a lot of ego going into your next film like (laughs) people loved Forrest Gump and so you know if you're adapting someone you kind of have the you know I am just projecting but I can imagine the authority of like no I'll change it no this is I'm going to tell this story because I know because Forrest Gump was an adaptation as well Mm. um that was again that was apparently very very different (laughs) very different yep yeah and did really well so who are we to question you know his storytelling 
well, choices. I would question whether making oh, a lot I of would money question is, the, it. I just is the judgment this. of a good film. <laughs> I just I just mean at the no, time, know, like, that's the argument, right? <laughs> you know, that he's going in being like, who are you to question me? I just made one of the greatest films of all time. Like, I'm going to make the choices I want to make. If you don't like that one, I also made Back to the Future. <laughs> right. uh, but he does do a little a little Forrest Gump in this where he inserts Bill Clinton. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Wasn't this the movie that actually... Oh, no, I think that might have been Independence Day. Right around this time, this is when the uh, FCC cracked down on using like historical footage ah. for fictional storytelling. And it was either Independence Day or Contact. And it was footage of Bill Clinton. That independ- it must have it been, must been this because Independence Day has its own president. Film. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Clinton, it yeah. must have been this. <laughs> yeah, that they basically were just like, no, you can't, you can't just cut and splice news together yeah <laughs> basically fake having a cameo from the president that's pretty yeah 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 it's a bold move <laughs> at least they didn't have him saying anything too ridiculous or anything but still yeah. pretty wild yeah yeah well it's just like hey everybody look we're, we're contemporary of course now it dates the movie doesn't it but <laughs> for sure um but yeah i i derailed us a little bit from talking about the machine but what's cool is, is like what I think they did smartly in this film was they didn't dwell on the literal science of this machine. Mm. It was just that they got the blueprints, they knew how to interpret them. And so they built it. And we don't need as viewers to fully understand exactly what they're doing. And even the, you know, the implication is that a lot of the engineers who are building it don't fully understand it. It's Mm. that the blueprints are, you know, makes sense and we're going to test it, which is bold. And, um, (laughs) And uh, we'll just trust it. Yep. Let it fly apart at the seams. That that is a wild shot. When the well, yeah, they were uh, they were so concerned with whether they could, they didn't ask whether they should. Although in this film, they spend a lot of time asking whether they should, so that doesn't really apply. (laughs) (laughs) That's like the entire film. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jeff Goldblum would approve. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Oh, Ian Malcolm would have a freaking field day with contact. <laughs> so, um, how would you consult if you if say this was a production you were consulting on? What, what, what would be your advice for what goes on with the machine? <laughs> I mean, honestly, it doesn't need much because I don't think that's the story they're trying to tell. Is not how it works, as opposed to Arrival, which we brought up earlier. Right, a lot of that is literally trying to figure out what they're communicating. Um, but with this, I mean, it's a point to point wormhole is essentially what's going on, right? Mm. That they're, they're finding a way to generate an artificial wormhole that connects two points in space time. And, um, and through traveling through it, it's all dealing with relativity. So her time experienced is different than the time you experience once you go through the wormhole, which I think is interesting. Um, it can be explained a couple of ways. One is that when you fall into the machine, you travel through a wormhole. And then when they send you back, they send you back to the moment you fell through it. Um, at which point no time has passed. And so scientifically that all tracks, that all makes sense. It's a point to point travel system. It sends you back basically to the point you fell through it because it's a point in space time. So it's the last time that you had, it's your last coordinates. That's what they send you back to. And then uh, you fall back, you finish falling through it and uh, you're back home. 
That seems to track pretty well. Yeah, I guess, and I guess the the eighteen hours of footage is the one that really kind of nails that one down. Because yeah, because I, I was kind of like thinking this not being what's in the movie. Because like I said, that's kind of the smoking gun. But <laughs> I was yeah. like, what if the machine actually did create it like all in her mind? So it actually was all in her mind, and well, she just mm. had to trust that. <laughs> in the book, they have a different version of the proof that she gets. Um, in the book, when she meets the alien, the alien tells her that um, our whole universe was built by an ancient race of aliens and that they've left clues for us in numbers like pi. Um, and then when she gets back to Earth, they calculate pi to like more digits than ever before and find, I think they find like a perfect circle or a perfect square within the number or something. It, it gets real wild at the end of the book. So I can kind of see why they cut that for a Hollywood audience. But <laughs> yes, yeah. I, I did read the book. Okay. But also <laughs> in the book, they send five, not just one. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've read it the is... book. It's just been a long time. Okay. <laughs> it's, yeah. That ending part is pretty different. Um, but it means that you the change to the film, I think, is so they can explore this element of faith. And that Ellie, who's been talking about evidence this whole time, now asks everyone to take what she says on faith. Yeah, yeah. I guess it is a, a a machine built for one as opposed to five. Because I I was thinking, you know, I, I do podcasts on the Twilight Zone, and they keep sending like two astronauts to different planets. Like, no, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> right. You have one the of, air and the spare. That's the thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just yeah. If one of them goes mad, they're both shafted. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Although I'm now wondering. So Matt, are you familiar with the secret space program? I, I yeah, I like we reading weird stuff. So I I read a book on it. <laughs> uh, so the secret space program are people who claim that when they were children, they were taken from their body, they served ten years on the secret military slave compounds on Mars or whatever, <laughs> but then they were put back into their body at the exact moment they left. Oh, I and I'm now wondering, Solar I, Warden. That, that's that's the name that goes with it. This must they must have come up with this after the film contact. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure, why not? But I'm wondering when the earliest people who claimed that were now. <laughs> I, I, I know some of them claim it happened in the 80s, but I don't know when they started talking about it. So right, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it could track after this film. So yeah. uh, I have I haven't dove like you know, like when, for me, that's like fantastic science fiction. Like, like for me, mm-hmm. I, I do like one of the reasons I do like some of the crazy fringe science books is I'm like, I mean, they're portraying it to you as nonfiction, but you're like, actually, this is really good science fiction. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I've read the Zachary yeah. Fisher books. I'm like, I don't think this is the case, but it's it's certainly good science fiction. <laughs> well, I think contact falls into the category. So I always have this argument with my father, who is a scientist and reads very little fiction, mm. um, that I will try to introduce him to some sci-fi. And he's like, no, there wasn't any science in it. <laughs> and, he, and he had that reaction with Arrival. And we started talking. He was like, there wasn't any science in it. It's not science fiction. I'm like, no, but the whole movie, and I think contact applies here too, is about the scientific method and about scientific processes. It's like what it means to be a scientist. It doesn't necessarily have to be like a science problem that they're solving. It's more just about how scientists interact with the unknown. And that's what qualifies it as a good sci-fi. So it's like expanding that to talking about the machine and talking about how she interacts with the data that they're given. It's not 
the science of the machine and how it works. It's this ability to sort of comprehend what's going on and to try to interpret it and approach it like a scientist would of like, no, I need evidence. I need evidence. That's what I'm going to look for. And um, that's why I think it does so successfully. Yeah. I think um, because, yeah, my dad is also, he's a physicist. And whenever a film gets the science wrong, I hear about it. Um, <laughs> but I, he, he really liked Arrival because he just found the, he just saw it as the science it was looking at wasn't really astronomy or aliens. It was language was actually what the film yeah. was about. And he just thought it, it said interesting things about linguistics. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I got like a, it filled my phone screen messenger message about Tenet from my dad. So <laughs> <laughs> I can't even imagine. <laughs> right. uh, causality and it doesn't make sense. <laughs> it's a dumb movie. <laughs> I got to pose the question to everyone if, if you're willing to take this trip. <laughs> yeah, obviously. Million percent. Okay. Oh, hell yeah. Okay. Hell yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, I've recently, I often ask students or people like, so if tomorrow they're launching the spaceship to the first Mars colony and you're invited, you get on. And I'm so disappointed the amount of people who say no. Well, I wouldn't even That's... think about it. I'd be on yeah. the ship right now. <laughs> oh, no. I, I, that, would, they, would they let me take a guitar? That's important for me. I'd but imagine you, the only reason they'd be inviting you was to take your guitar. Kind of while you're contributing. <laughs> I can jam for the for the yeah. aliens. Yeah. <laughs> the thing is, for me, near term space travel, I'm like, no, 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 that's scary as shit. Like that's that's scary. I don't want to. I don't want to do that. Yeah, Mars has a lot of radiation that. and no water. Um, but if it just means falling through a thing that aliens sent us, heck yeah, <laughs> bring that on. I'll try that. And um, let's just, I, I, there's not really much to talk about with it, except that this, you know, rivals 2001 for trippiest space sequence ever, for sure. It's definitely better than Stargates. That's <laughs> <laughs> what I was sat there comparing it to. Uh, Balance. Yeah. Sort of 90s wormhole effect. Yeah. As we started this conversation off, there's, uh, you know, we were talking about quite a bit of dissonance. So I'm like, Man, did this film age well? I, I'm, do I just enjoy watching it regularly because I'm a an old man watching his relics? <laughs> well, depending who you ask, this film has either aged brilliantly or terribly, because it did predict like the nature of sort of the the culture war battle within America, right? And the anti science. I mean, look at what's just happened in America very recently. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but the problem is that it does, like, 
and I'm sure if you're someone who's on the right and who loves that kind of thing, you're like, this film's great. Um, but unfortunately, I think the film just presents it all from the wrong angle for me. So I kind of find it quite grating in, at times. Like I said, I think the the Christian right in America has moved much more far right than it presented itself in the late 90s. Um, now, there was always that side, but now it's much more polarized than it is. So that's in the sense I don't think it's aged well, because it's like now we do see those Matthew McConaughey's everywhere. Mm. And the people that we're seeing aren't just like casually challenging like science. They're like diehard, like, no, people deserve to die. Like people who don't believe what I believe, like should be erased from the face of the earth. So that makes it much harder to watch because you can see those seeds there. Mm. Um, but I do think where it has aged well is the generations now of women who were inspired by Dr. Ellie Arroway. And so you can look back on it and draw a straight line from girls who are my age watching that film who were like, oh, I can do that. That looks awesome. I want to chase scientists. I mean, I could point to myself for that. You know, I had my Dr. Ellie Arroway moment. And so, um, so I think it's, it's aged it's as much as America has since the late nineties, it has polarized itself in each direction. You know, it's created a bunch of amazing women scientists that certainly were not represented in the late nineties as they are now. Um, but at the same time, it represents the seed of America that has become much more mainstream. That is much, in my opinion, less. Okay. Yeah. So, Luke, you being a Brit, does this statement make sense that ID four is the, science fiction that Americans want and contact someone that they deserve. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Or the other way around. Well, the irony being ID4 was made by a European and is clearly a satire of America. It's just that none of you got it. <laughs> I still ate that up. <laughs> oh, I love that film. I watch it every Independence Day and I'm not... It's I'm my, never, that is in my top five. Yeah. I've never set foot in the Americas. <laughs> when, when Luke needs to Make us may do public speaking. Can't think of what to say. He just makes the uh, president's speech. Yeah, as you should. That makes perfect sense. No, it's in my top five films. It's a great, great movie. Yeah, I love that movie. <laughs> um, as our time's winding down, I do need to ask one question. Since you are giving Star Trek all of your scientific advice these days, what's the most whack idea that you gave them that ended up in the show? <laughs> <laughs> Like you're um, like, there's no way this is going to make it in, and it did. <laughs> <laughs> no, they. I've got a great relationship with all of the genuinely good relationship with all of the writers and showrunners and everything. Um, but for me, what's really fun is just when they come to me being like, I, "We need some like space disaster," and then. I mean, we did this in season three. I was like, oh, coronal mass ejection. No one's ever done that in Star Trek before. And then that was the space disaster. So, you know, it's like, oh, no, they listen to me. <laughs> that's, oh, that's, that's, cool. that's the scary part. Cool <laughs> <laughs> it's a very cool feeling. It's awesome. I got to create a lot of uh, dilithium cannon for season four of Discovery, which was like, that was stressful. That kept me up at night because I was like, dilithium's <laughs> been around forever. And I get to add to the science of it um in my own little quirky way so yeah it's just it, it's, yeah. yeah i guess that runs the risk of well in this 1977 novel dilithium had this property <laughs> yep that's what keeps me up at night <laughs> but you know i make my judgment calls so i've got a solid science background you know so i i make what makes sense to me and i try to not violate any scientific principles and and we go with it and i think that's really cool uh, 
still, I kind of have to pinch myself occasionally and be like, no, no, this is, it's Star Trek. It's Star Trek. That's the I, thing. I, I love, I love the, uh, the trippy mind bleepery stuff. And we've been getting, you know, just boatloads of that. So <laughs> good. Yes. Makes me happy. Um, also, do you have a, a website we can like, you know, kind of funnel people to if they want to see what you're up yeah, to? Yeah. I mean, the easiest way to find me is on Twitter at Dr. Aaron Mack. Um, on September 6th, I have a book coming out that's uh, for babies. <laughs> it's a board book um, called Star Trek, my first book of space. It's like literally a board book um, of space science, which is pretty cool. And so that comes out on September 6th. And uh, yeah, if you find me, Dr. Aaron Mack, pretty much anywhere, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. And I'm always happy to answer science questions. Nice. Okay, Luke, I guess uh, send them our way. If you want to find this podcast, we're on Twitter at MLSFSPod. Also on Facebook, YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Just search Matt and Luke Sci-Fi Sanctuary. Make sure you rate and review, like and subscribe, blah, blah, blah. If you want to find other podcasts made by me and Matt, you can go to patreon.com slash podcastio, podcastios. And even if you don't want to throw us any money, you can find links to all of our content over there. Well, Aaron, other than getting the ghost of Carl Sagan on, I, I can't imagine getting a better guest for this kind of a movie. So uh, even if it's not Luke's favorite. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciated the discussion. It's been a pleasure, guys. <laughs> no, I was really glad to talk about it because, like I said, there's so many elements of this film that I do love. And then there's just this weird bit around the edge that winds me up. Yeah. And definitely part because I when I said like, oh, I don't see myself as one of these big atheist guys. My mum is one of them. <laughs> so part of it is that I've had 30 years of in my hair, like, oh, that fucking film. Oh, that shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was a parameter we didn't factor in. But right. yes. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, she has a very Catholic. So my grandmother is super Catholic, which means my mum is then like super atheist. And yeah. I've just found this comfortable spot in the middle where it's like, you know, I don't really think about it, guys. <laughs> yeah, I grew up Episcopal. They just drink a bunch of wine. <laughs> <laughs>